Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. If you know me at all, even if it's through social media, you know I'm a huge fan of Redmond Real Salt. Why? You're about to find out. On the Real Salt website, it reads, There is a vast difference in the quality of salts on the market today. A quick glance at the ingredients label on most salts might surprise you. Many salts contain anti-caking agents and even dextrose. Others have been heat processed and stripped of their natural trace minerals. Real salt brand sea salt, on the other hand, is unrefined and full of natural minerals and flavor, the way salt was meant to be savored. Redmond Real Salt is the real deal, which is why I was so excited that the grandson of the company's founder, Daryl Bosshart, agreed to chat with me. Now, you may be thinking, an episode on salt on the Health Investment Podcast? Isn't salt something I should be avoiding? The answer to this question is nuanced, and Daryl and I definitely get into the topic. However, there's an interesting article on Healthline.com, which I'll link in the show notes, called, Is Salt Actually Bad for You? Right now, I'm just going to read a little excerpt, but again, you can find the full article in the link in the show notes. There is some evidence showing that high salt intake may be associated with an increased risk of certain conditions like stomach cancer or high blood pressure. Despite this, there are several studies showing that a reduced salt diet may not actually decrease the risk of heart disease or death. A large 2011 review made up of seven studies found that salt reduction had no effect on the risk of heart disease or death. Another review with over 7,000 participants showed that reduced salt intake did not affect the risk of death and had only a weak association with the risk of heart disease. However, the effect of salt on the risk of heart disease and death may vary for certain groups. For example, one large study showed that a low-salt diet was associated with a reduced risk of death, but only in overweight individuals. Meanwhile, another study actually found that a low-salt diet increased the risk of death by 159% in those with heart failure. Clearly, further research is needed to determine how decreasing salt intake may affect different populations. But it's safe to say that reducing salt intake does not automatically decrease the risk of heart disease or death for everyone. Now, like I said, the answer is nuanced. Just like with any dietary change, it's good to have a chat with your physician. And also, it's important to consider the source. As mentioned, and as Daryl explains in the episode, not all salt is created equal. So it may be best for you to avoid high-sodium packaged foods and table salt while still enjoying real salt. Before we get to the episode, I want to let you know that there's a new hyperlink in town. For some reason, iTunes is not the most user-friendly when it comes to leaving podcast reviews, so I devised a way to make it easier for you. If you visit thehealthinvestment.com slash review, I walk you through a simple three-step process for leaving an Apple podcast review. Written reviews are a great way to quote-unquote pay your favorite podcasters. Each review is like gold to us. 
So if you enjoy what you hear on this podcast and you'd like to leave feedback, head on over to thehealthinvestment.com slash review and let me know what you think. I'd so appreciate it. All right, it's time to learn everything you'll ever want to know about salt. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing. You deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing. There are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm going to share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I want to help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one. So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Daryl. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. My husband and I are super fans, I would call us, of Redmond Real Salt. It's pretty much the only salt we use. So I'm honored to be able to speak to you today and to pick your brain and learn everything there is to know about salt. Well, I am so glad you would have us on the program. And uh, earlier today, I actually listened to your Q&A episode and you gave a great shout out to Redmond and talked a little bit about iodine. And so I'm excited to explore that in a little more detail today. Awesome. Yeah, I know. I was researching iodine and your website had the best response I could find. So I thought might as well just shout you guys out and you say it so perfectly on your site. And I'm sure you'll explain it today. But can you share your story and your background and how you got into salt and salt mining to begin with? Yes, I'd be glad to. So when people hear of salt and Utah, the first thing they think of is the Great Salt Lake. Um, most people don't know that two hours south of the Great Salt Lake, there's an ancient seabed that was laid down long before the Great Salt Lake, long before Lake Bonneville. And this ancient seabed has been protected and secluded in central Utah. And so after World War II, my grandfather and his brother were both working for the war effort. My grandfather was working as a riveter and then as a business manager for McDonnell Douglas in California. And his brother was a miner at Kennecott Copper Mine, the big copper mine here in Utah. So after the war ended, they wanted to come back together and bring their families together. And so they went back to their their, their father's farm in central Utah and started farming. And north and south of their farm, there was little outcroppings of salt that had been that the early settlers had had mined, and uh, but it been roughly or not used a whole lot, not really commercialized uh, at that point. And then in the late 1950s, there was a drought that really put their farm in a world of hurt. And so they thought, hey, the the droughts kind of put the farm in a bad spot. But there's salt north and south of our farm. Maybe if we dig down, we can hit salt and go into the salt mining business as a way to feed the family and give the boys some work. And so that's what they did. And that's how my family got into the salt business. Wow, that's so cool. Uh, So I'm sure some people are hearing this right now and maybe thinking, why is Brooke doing an episode on salt? I thought salt was really bad for me and I thought I should be avoiding sodium in my diet. So can you speak to those concerns that some people may still have? 
yeah, you know, there's a really fun book on salt. It's called Salt, A World History. And if you're ever, you know, stuck in your house for several days, maybe because <laughs> you're under quarantine, it's a fun <laughs> book to read. And it goes over the history of salt. And so, yes, you know, we hear today that salt's bad for us or that we may ought to eat less salt. But what some people don't realize is every civilization started around access to the salt deposits because animals need salt to survive and humans need salt to survive. And so salt was actually a source of trade. It was a source of religious. It was used in religious ceremonies. In fact, the term salary and the the term is a, is a man worth his salt was because back mm. in Roman times, Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt. And if you weren't worth your salt, meaning you weren't working hard enough to earn the salt that you were given, then you weren't worth your salt. So that's where that comes from, where the term salary comes, because it's that's based on, on salt and saline. And so salt has always been an essential part of every civilization. And then it's only been in the last few hundred years that it's become this bad thing in the press that we need to avoid. What's interesting, though, is if you went to the hospital, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to give you an IV of saline solution, which is right. salt water. Yeah. In fact, an IV of anything else, if you've got an IV of, of tap water or an IV of distilled water or an IV of coffee, although we might want that in the morning, um, you know, an IV of anything but 0.9% saline would be disastrous to the body because salt is such an essential part of our body. In fact, outside of or right behind water and oxygen, salt is really that next key ingredient to sustain life. And this is why, you, unfortunately, you know, every summer we'll see usually military guys or maybe high school um, athletes that are out running in the hot sun in Florida or in Texas or in California, running, sweating all day long, and one of them falls over and passes out and sometimes even die. And the diagnosis there is called hyponatremia, which is low salt. Because if you've ever worked out and you're sweating, if you, I wouldn't recommend it, but if you lick your arm while you're sweating, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll taste salty. Um, if you taste your tears, they're salty. And you may just take my word for it. If you taste your urine, it's going to be salty mm. because our body uses salt to process everything in the body. And so our cells have something called the sodium potassium pump, and it requires sodium to, to process and to keep the intercellular and extracellular fluids correct in our body. So moisture regulation, um, detoxification, every process in the body requires salt to have that happen. And so um, the only difference in the, you know, or, or us visiting here one minute outside of a spiritual discussion, you know, you know, we're discussing and talking, and then if one of us were to die, the only difference is the absence of an electric current, again, outside of a spiritual discussion, because our bodies communicate. My hand moves with this electric current that passes through my body to tell my hand to move. Um, our, our brains, our hearts, everything is running on electricity. And so if you don't have the salt that conducts that electricity in the body, everything starts to shut down. Hmm. So what, where does this recommendation come from then that some people, people with uh, hypertension, for example, should be avoiding salt or eliminating salt? Oh, that's a great question. I don't get asked that one a lot, actually. Oh. <laughs> um, so what's interesting is if we went back to, you know, the late 
1800s, before the refrigerator was invented, all of us or many of us would have eaten more salt than we do today. Um, and the reason for that is in the wintertime, everything you would have eaten would have been preserved in salt. You would have had kimchi and sauerkrauts and pickles and jerkies. And because, you know, if you're living anywhere other than a, a tropical climate that you have food all, all of the time, you, you harvest in the fall, you preserve that with sauerkrauts and kimchi, you know, using salt to preserve your food. Or you make jerky, you use salt to suck the, the moisture out of meat. Um, and so salt is an essential part of the diet. But what happened was um, salt companies realized a couple things. One, when salt occurs in nature, it occurs as a complex chloride. So if you go out in the, into the ocean, you don't just have pure sodium and chloride. You have magnesium chloride, calcium chloride, potassium chloride, all these other electrolytes that are really, really important when it comes to how the body regulates its electrolytes. Mm -hmm. um, and in salt production, you can take the salt, pull the seawater off, and you can pull out the magnesium chloride, then you can pull out the potassium chloride, then you can pull out the calcium chloride. And now with this, you know, refined processed salt, the body doesn't process it like it did when it was a natural salt. So not only do salt companies around the turn of the century start pulling off some of these other electrolytes that are commonly found in salt water, at the same time, salt is, is hygroscopic. Hygroscopic is a word that basically means it's a dehumidifier. So if you put a big salt crystal out on your kitchen table and it's really humid that day, that salt actually sucks the water out of the air and makes the salt uh, look wet because it, it's just that good at sucking moisture. Now, this is really important because, you know, the way the salt deals or the body helps regulate its water with salt as well as the the way the salt itself works so because salt is hygroscopic and it sucks moisture out of the air if you put a shaker of salt on the table natural salt that salt will start to clump because mm. it's sucking moisture out of the air well some people didn't want salt to clump and so they started looking around and what type of chemicals they could add to the salt to prevent it from, from clumping together. Now, the challenge with this is, you know, salt's supposed to regulate moisture in our bodies. The intercellular and extracellular fluids are regulated by the salt that we consume. So salt companies realized that they could add these anti-caking agents to the salt that repel and interact with the moisture to stop the natural way the salt interacts with moisture. Now, some of these chemicals are things like sodium silicoaluminate. That's a very similar that you'd find in antiperspirants. Yeah. Or you'll see um, sodium ferrous cyanide. That's sodium iron cyanide. Um, and these chemicals were approved for use in sea salts and in just salts in general as a way to stop the salt from clumping. Hmm. So you could take the, a salt shaker and tap it on the counter a couple of times to stop the clumping, or you can add it full of chemicals and it's only a small percentage of chemical, but you can still put those chemicals in there and stop it from clumping. The challenge is if you are taking too much of your antiperspirant every morning before breakfast or eating things like sodium silico or calcium or uh, sodium ferrous cyanide, in, even in small amounts, you know, that is not something that, you want to be taking every day because of the way it impacts moisture in our bodies. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So then 
I would imagine too that the sodium in processed foods is different from eating real salt, your salt, for example, or a sea salt or pink salt because it's highly processed. Yes. And so, yes, well, there's a couple of things going on. Sorry for the long answer, but, uh, no, no, it's so interesting. So the nature of salt changed. That was, that was part of the problem. Um, so now that now, now the salt is processed, it's got these other anti-cake agents added to it. Um, and then salt becomes this, you know, it kind of tastes bitter. It repels moisture instead of, you know, draws it in, which is the way, you know, salt's supposed to work in the body. And then, Salt starting to be used as a way to create cheap food. Because salt's a natural preservative, food companies would just put more and more of this processed salt in to preserve food even longer or even better. And so not only and, and the foods they were doing that with are foods that we probably shouldn't be eating a lot of, like potato chips or um, other things that so there's a, there's multiple problems going on. Yes, it's the bad salt that's being put into all of these foods. But two, the foods that the salt's getting put on are high starches, high fats, high um, and you know saturated fats. Things that that once you add, I mean, so let's say you take a potato, you you know, fry it in a bunch of bad oil, you 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 smoke the oil, then you add a lot of salt to it, and then if you're craving this salty, you know, processed food item, then yeah, you should eat less of that, and it's not the salt. It's the processed salt and the poor food choice that's causing the problem. And that's what they found in these studies is they were linking the salt to when they were doing these salt studies, they were using copious amounts of salt, but it was this refined salt and on bad foods. And so, yeah, you got results that would say, yeah, you should eat less salty foods because the, the salt's terrible that they were using and the food's terrible they were putting it on. So it's this double whammy. Right. So when looking for a high quality salt, what should we be looking for? So years ago, you could walk into a health food store and you could look for, you know, quote unquote, sea salt. And that might have been a pretty good product. Unfortunately, today, sea salt can be defined as anything because all salt comes from a seabed at some point. It might come from the San Francisco Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, the Sea of Japan. It might come from the Dead Sea in Israel or the Great Salt Lake in Utah, or it might be an ancient seabed, like the Himalayan salt that comes out of the Pakistan region, or the real salt that comes out of Utah, or the Andean pink salt that comes out of the Peru area. And so, but the consistent thing is a seabed. And so I don't tell people to look at sea salt anymore. In fact, when I give a presentation, I'll ask people and say, who has heard that sea salt's better? And it's surprising the number of people that raise their hand and think sea salt's better. And, and they do that because we've heard that for years. The problem, though, is if you went into the, the health food store or grocery store and pick up a jar that might say sea salt and flip the label over and look at the back of it, you might see a whole list of ingredients. Mm. Or you might see that it says that through a series of evaporation ponds, we've successfully eliminated all other elements. And so they're pulling out the calcium, the potassium. So what I think you really should look for, instead of looking for sea salt, and this would apply for a lot of foods, but actually pick up the product and look at the label. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, I'm a little biased for Redmond um, mm -hmm. because of the family connection, because I think it's just one of the best salts in the world. But there's a lot of other good salts out there. And if you learn to read labels, you can find some great salts that may or may not be the Redmond real salt which again, I'm a little biased to. Right. So it's really 
like you said, with other things as well, just important that we be informed consumers turn the salt over, just like with any packaged item, check for ingredients, make sure that sea salt or salt is the only ingredient. Yeah, things that you'll notice, uh, kind of red flags, if you will, if it says refined, um, you know, that's a suggestion that have pulled out some of the other the other elements that occur with it. Um, you'll see things, if you see um, really any other ingredient besides salt, that's an indication that you may want to, you know, use that for something else, make some Play-Doh with it or something. Yeah. Um, but if you're going to, if you're going to consume it really, you know, why would you want anything in your shaker other than just pure, clean, natural salt? And so if there's any other ingredients, that's a, a tip off that maybe you want to pick up the next, the next product down on the shelf. One of the fun ones that uh, you'll see oftentimes in salts is dextrose as an ingredient. We used to say, um, you know, just a spoonful of sugar helps the bad salt mm-hmm. go down in the most delightful way, kind of like the old Mary Poppins song. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, dextrose isn't in there as a sweetener. Um, because of these other chemicals that they're adding to the salt, things like the yellow preciated soda, over time that can change and turn yellow or blue. Um, but as they add dextrose, it actually slows down the color changing process of the salt. And so that's why when you see dextrose in your salt, that's an indication that there's another chemical they're either trying to mask or change the reaction by putting sugar, which is dextrose, in a salt product. Because that's the only reason that that would be in there. Yeah. What about, so you mentioned sea salt and then pink salt. Are there differences between those or are sea salts and pink salts the same thing? Um, so the, the term sea salt, I think, is is just become kind of meaningless now. Oh, okay. Um, so I do think there's some of the some of the brands that I like that if I you know I don't have real salt available, then I would use those. One is a gray salt. So mm. gray salt is produced kind of the old fashioned way, so to speak. So seawater occurs at around you know two to three percent, depending on the area of sodium chloride. Um, our bodies are about 1% or 0.9% is what our bodies are. That's why when you go in the ocean, it stings because the salt water in the oceans a little stronger than the salt water in your body. And so, but salt has a max salinity of about 26% is when it's max salinity. So to make salt the old fashioned way off an ocean, if you lived by the coast, you could go out and collect the seawater that's at about 2 to 3% sodium chloride with other trace minerals in it. And then you can let that water evaporate. And as the water evaporates, it goes from 3% to 4% to 15% to 20%. At 26%, that solution now is max salinity. I mean, it, it can't get any stronger because you've you've evaporated the water off. As the water continues to evaporate, the salt crystals will form and fall out of suspension onto the bottom of that dish that you're using, or even it'll forms the crystals on the top of the water. And so in France, the way they used to do that, they would line a pond with gray clay. And they use clay because clay stops the water from seeping into the ground. So they would bring the seawater in, in a clay-lined pond, let the water evaporate, the salt settles off to the bottom. And when the salt does that, it picks up some of the gray color and minerals from the clay, which gives you that pretty gray color of Celtic salt. Um, and that's a, that's a great product. Now, they use the same process in Hawaii. If you ever go to Hawaii, they use the same process, and it's a red salt because they line the pond in Hawaii with a red 
clay from Hawaii. And so the Hawaiian salt has a kind of a dusty red color to it. It has a really great flavor. And that salt's used from current ocean water to the original evaporation process. And those are great salts. Um, the, the pink salt that comes from the Himalayan region or that comes from um, the Bolivian, Peruvian region in South America or the Utah deposit of pink salt that's real salt, those are from ancient seabeds. So eons ago, this is Jurassic age salt. So during the Jurassic era, this is Pangaea, the supercontinent is still, you know, one land mass. And as the supercontinent starts to pull apart, the ocean floods in. This is, according to geologists, 150 million years ago, leaving all of this pristine seabed from the Jurassic era. It, huh. At the same process happens, the water evaporates, the salt from this prehistoric sea settles out, floods again, the salt settles out, then it's covered in, you know, ash and, and soil and it's compressed and then, you know, a million years goes by and then it's pushed up into uh, into a salt dome and that's where this, the, the salt occurs at the surface and that's the same process of the Himalayan salt that comes out of Pakistan, the Redmond real salt here in Utah and the Bolivian pink in South America. That same process took place and so one of the things that the reasons that I really love real salt, and if I didn't have real salt, I would probably, if I lived in South America, I would use the um, the Bolivian pink salt, or if I lived in Pakistan, I'd use the Himalayan pink salt, because these seabeds that were laid down during the Jurassic era, we didn't have the concerns with Exxon Valdez and BP and the Japan disaster, and, and you know, so unfortunately, us humans haven't been the best stewards of our planet Earth, mm -hmm. and our oceans aren't as clean as they were years ago. And so one of the things that I really like about an ancient sea salt is not only do you have this pristine prehistoric sea that's been protected and trapped, that's got these natural minerals in it that give it its sweet flavor and its kind of rosy quartz color, but you know it's laid down, I mean, the biggest thing of pollution might have been a dinosaur walking around, but... Um, not the pollution that we unfortunately have in our oceans today with the microbeads and the plastics and, and all the other stuff that uh, we've done to the earth. Yeah, that's important to think about, I guess, of how the pollution, unfortunately, would be affecting the salt that comes from the ocean. I think that's something that I don't, I haven't really thought about in the past, but that's a really interesting point to make. What about, I think I can probably predict your answer on this, but what do you think about salt substitutes? I mean, what's even in those? You know, that is a great question. So because people are under this assumption that salt's bad, when you think salt's bad, you think, well, maybe I ought to find a salt substitute. The real question is, you know, maybe salt isn't as bad as you thought it was. Now, if you're on kidney failure or if you have, there are, there is a very small percentage of the population that is, is salt sensitive. Right. Like there's, you know, some that are sensitive to bananas and or whatever, you know, there's just a small percentage that are. So, you know, I'd always want to preface any discussion on salt before you, you know, go to town and just eat all the salt that you'd like, which most people can actually do would be to keep that in mind, you know, kidney failure and uh, salt sensitivity is is a thing. So, but salt substitutes in general, I think it's unfortunate that, that people will go to this grocery store and they'll hear that salt's bad, so they'll look for a salt substitute. The challenge is, is if you 
grab a salt substitute and you look at the label, there's actually a warning label on salt substitutes that says for normal, healthy people. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You know, you'd think that the salt substitute would be for people that are not healthy, but are looking for, you know, something else. But the challenge is because people heard that I've heard that sodium's bad, even though we've established it really isn't, because that's the first thing you're going to get as an IV is saline solution. If somebody's heard sodium's bad, you might find a salt substitute. And what they're doing is they're taking the sodium and chloride and they're cutting it with potassium chloride. Now that sounds fine, other than potassium chloride is not what our bodies run off. We do need potassium on our diets for sure. But you would never go to the hospital and get a potassium chloride IV. Well, right. that's not completely true. There are some really unique situations if your electrolytes are really out of balance that you might get a potassium chloride IV. But it is a, it, it's extremely rare, and it will burn like crazy when the IV goes into your arm. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, um, in lethal injections in states that do that, Potassium chloride is the last injection they give you because potassium chloride injection will stop your heart. Mm. And so salt substitutes, that's why a salt substitute has a warning label is because it does have potassium chloride and that can really mess with the heart way more than sodium chloride, which is what you get in your IV. So yeah, I am not a big fan of salt substitutes. I do think we all need to go out of our way to get good amounts of potassium and magnesium in our diets. But a salt substitute with potassium chloride is not the way to do that. Right. So we briefly mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, my little Q&A episode about iodine and salt. Does red? Does your salt have iodine in it? And should salt have iodine in it? What about that? So iodine and salt have, were never were never linked together until about World War One, and so iodine is super important. In fact, I would guess, based on doctors that I've talked to, most of your listeners are probably iodine deficient, which is a huge issue because iodine deficiency is not only goiter, which is the one everybody knows about, but iodine deficiency causes a lot of problems. From, and especially in women, from tumor issues, um, you know, in the breast and the thyroid, and it, um, it regulates diet and sex drive. There's so many things that iodine plays a part in. But the reason that people associate iodine and salt is because in World War One, when the draft was going, the military was trying to draft men out of the Midwest, and a lot of these men that were getting drafted had a goiter issue. You know, that's the big thyroid swollen gland issue. And you can't be drafted if you have a big thyroid goiter. And so they sat down and said, hey, we have got a huge problem with with goiter. And the the Midwest particularly is not getting enough iodine in their diets. Now, keep in mind, this is when, you know, canned foods, the Industrial Revolution. And we are, a lot of people are just eating, you know, processed flour and processed sugar and, and out of cans. And they're... And in the Midwest, particularly, not eating a lot of seafood, not getting kelp and seaweed and fish, which is why this, you know, goiter problem presented itself more in the Midwest. And so a bunch of experts got together and said, hey, how do we solve this problem? We need people to eat more iodine. And I don't know exactly how the conversation went, but I would Mm -hmm. like to think that somebody said, hey, let's have a campaign to eat more seaweed or kelp or fish or you know, mozzarella, cheese, some of these other great sources of iodine. 
what they came up with is let's try to add iodine to to flour because people are eating a lot of flour. If we add iodine to flour, then maybe they'll eat more of it and we'll force people to eat more iodine, kind of like they do with fluoride in some cities. You know, it's a way to right. you know push this onto the population. Um, it doesn't work very well. It's not very stable in flour. And so they found that they could take potassium iodide and add it to salt and it was quite stable. And so at that point, the government said, we will now make it a regulation that all salts have to have iodine added to them as a way to force the American population to eat more iodine. If you don't put iodine in the product, even if there's trace amounts in it, you have to put a label that says this salt does not supply iodide a necessary nutrient. So if you pick up any natural salt that doesn't have iodine in it, there should be a label that say, or that doesn't have iodine added to it. There should be a label that says this salt does not supply iodine a necessary nutrient, even though the salt can contain natural iodine. Mm. So it's, it's kind of confusing, but that's why that's on there. And so, yes, real salt does contain natural trace amounts of iodine in it, um, and which makes sense because the sea water has iodine. That's why seaweed is high in iodine, kelp and dole, super high in iodine in natural um, forms. And same thing with fish. Uh, fish coming out of the ocean has good amounts of iodine. So you would make sense that this ancient seabed would have iodine in it and that some of those trace amounts of iodine would still be in the, the deposit itself. But it's not a dietary source of iodine. But salt is also not an a dietary source of carbs or fats or proteins or anything else. So the idea that we need to get our iodine from salt is is silly, really. Now, yeah. it did work. Um, people that started using iodized salt, it, it solved the problem. And the reason there's a great book on iodine. It's called uh, Iodine, Why You Need It, Why You Can't Live Without It, written by a doctor, David Brownstein. He's an MD in the Midwest. Um, and he talks about all of the reasons that we need iodine. And in his, in his research, in his book, he shows that the iodine that's added to iodized salt is less than 10% bioavailable. Huh. And so, yes, we do need iodine. And yes, probably everybody that's, you know, that's listening to the podcast today should be searching out ways to add great iodine to their diet. And if they can't do it in the diet, maybe there's a place for supplements. But iodine is super important. But salt is a terrible way to try to get it. Right. And it, I mean, even the salt you would be eating that is iodized, it's not the natural form anyway, or the most bioavailable form. So that's clearly not the best way to get it. Exactly. So if now we've established, or not if, we've established that salt is not something to be feared or avoided in most people. So how much is the general recommendation that people should try to eat per day? Or is there still kind of a cap and we should try not to eat too, too much? What, do you know the general recommendation? So when in nature, you know, cows or horses or um you know, in animal husbandry, animals have free access to salt and they don't overdose on it. Mm. And you really can't overdose on salt if you have water and the salts in the right form. So if you went to the hospital and got an IV, you could have three or four IVs, you know, liters of saline that have way more than the recommended daily allowance of sodium. 
in an IV form because your body just flushes it out. Mm. In fact, Dr. David Brownstein in his book says healthy kidneys can probably process up to four ounces of salt per day. Wow. That's an incredible amount of salt. Now, I'm not recommending you go and eat four, four ounces of salt, but healthy kidneys have this ability to process sodium when it's in the right form and it's balanced with moisture. So um, there's a great book, or at least I think it's a great book. It's called Your Body's Many Cries for Water. Mm. It was a book. Um, the author was uh, Dr. Batman Gelly. Uh, he's passed away. This was years ago. Um, and his book talks about how our most people don't get near enough water. You know, we might drink soda, coffee, tea, whatever, but people just don't drink generally enough water. And so he says that if you're drinking enough water, which he says at a minimum, you should be drinking about half your body weight in ounces. So mm-hmm. if I'm 150 pounds, then that means, you know, I should be drinking about 75 ounces worth of water per day um, just to, you know, give my body the the water it needs to run all of its processes. And he says that you should salt your food liberally and then add a quarter teaspoon of salt per quart of water that you drink. Um, and if you do that and, and in the uh, the book Salt, Your Way to Health by Dr. David Brownstein. He uses a similar ratio. And so what I try to do is I just, I salt my food liberally. I'm not, I'm not worried about using too much salt. And actually I have a little dish of salt that's sitting out on my countertop. Um, and I do that because I find that when I walk past, sometimes I just craving a little bit of salt. So I'll just suck on a salt crystal. Um, and as I eat more salt, the salt becomes less sweet. Mm. Um, I mean, actually, on our website, we actually have little salt crystals that people will buy, and you can put them out, or actually, you can just lick them. And if you haven't had salt in a while, or if you get done with a nice run, maybe you've been out and working in the yard, when you taste salt, it tastes very sweet mm-hmm. when it's natural salt. And as you taste more of it, as your as your salt level comes up, then your body doesn't, it's not as sweet anymore, and your body doesn't crave it. So I'm going to listen to my body and salt my food liberally. And then if I am going out for a run or for a, a bike ride, um, I'll take salt with me. And when I come back, I think one of the best sports drinks you could ever make, you know, pennies on the dollar, doesn't have all the sugar and the artificial colors and stuff, is take a quart of water, one quarter teaspoon of real salt or your natural salt, and then um, mix that up with just a squeeze of lemon. And it is the best, most refreshing sports drink that I think you'll ever try. Yeah, just a natural Gatorade, if you will. Exactly. Yeah, but it doesn't have any of the, the sugars, doesn't have any of the uh, the food coloring in it. It's just the minerals and the water that your body needs. And it, especially after a good hard workout or you've been out, you know, roofing or working outside, really is an amazing, refreshing drink. Right. I uh, interviewed the co-founder of Pure Vitamin Club on this podcast. And I know that they use your salt in their ultra salt pills as well. Oh, yes. So that's something else that, you know, if it's a portable way to get your salt on the go, you know, if you are traveling or whatever, I like to take those. I found that being more mindful of having salt, or if I take one of those capsules, if I'm taking a long plane flight, I won't get as dehydrated if I'm drinking a lot of water on the plane flight and that can even help with jet lag or just kind of adapting. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of salt and I think it's great news because I've always liked salt more than sugar. So (laughs) 
Well, I, I think it's funny that you mentioned jet lag because salt is, again, essential in regulating, helping regulate sleep. Mm. And so, you know, just like melatonin, melatonin plays a part, so does having the right amounts of water and salt. So Awesome. That, yeah, that makes sense. I also think just knowing that we can eat natural salt, real salt on top of our whole foods that we cook for ourselves and make them more palatable it makes cooking and eating real food more appetizing, I think, because we're possibly used to all the processed things that have a lot of sodium, but so much better and more delicious, I think, to add salt to vegetables and proteins and cook them for yourself. But to know that you're kind of allowed to do that, that that can be one of the spices you use to cook with. Right. And not only just for the flavor, but there's actually... um you know, our, our bodies digest through electrolysis. And, and so having the salt with your meal actually can aid in that process as well. I mean, you know, spices do more than just add flavor. Spices are a great part of nutrition. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. ThriveMarket is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Speaking of Redmond salt, how many different salts do you currently sell? So the, the four main ones are the only, the main difference is just the size crystals. So we have a, a coarse crystal that's great for grinding in a salt grinder. There's no benefit to that. It's just, it looks fun and you can make different sizes. The kosher crystal, it's about uh, more like a snowflake or like a, you see on a pretzel. Yeah. Um, that actually has a good function, whether you're making, you know, salt caramels or you're doing edamame or you're making a pretzel, a larger salt crystal will actually uh, taste sweeter on the tongue than a finer crystal. Hmm. And a larger crystal will also suck moisture out of your food uh, more efficiently. So the reason it's called koshering salt or kosher salt is if you're Jewish, you can't um, you can't eat blood. And so if you want a piece of meat, you use koshering salt, which is that little larger crystal, and you cake it. You take the meat with that larger salt crystal. And remember, I said salt hygroscopic, so it sucks moisture. That larger kosher crystal will suck the blood or the moisture out of the meat and make the meat approved for the Jewish community, which is called kosher. Hmm. And so the reason that size of crystal is known as kosher salt, it's not because it was blessed or it was approved. It's just that that size in the Jewish community is used to make meat kosher. It's also a great size to take a, if you take a baked potato, you can roll it in some olive oil and roll it in the kosher salt and it gives you a kind of a little crunch or a crust on the outside. So a lot of ways you can use that. The fine, uh, just the regular table salt size, great for, you know, just, you know, finishing at your table. Then we have a powder size, which is about like a confectioner sugar, which is great for popcorn or uh, seasoned nuts or things that you would use topically, chips, things like that. And then we do have some seasoning blends that are fun for, you know, barbecuing or for vegetables. But those are the main, the main salts. 
Okay, I did not know about that powder salt, and I'm a huge fan of popcorn, so I'm going to order that immediately. <laughs> because it's so fine, you use less, but you have more surface area per gram exposed to the tongue. So the flavor just pops, explodes when you have the, the popcorn size. Once you put it in soup, it doesn't matter because it all dissolves the same. Right. But topically, you'll notice the biggest difference in the uh, kosher, which is that like you put on a pretzel or a margarita rimmer or the powder, which gives you those two extremes on the flavors. The kosher is more sweet when it's topical, and then the powder is a lot stronger. In soup, it all becomes the same, but topically dry, those two are really dramatically different. Well, this is exciting. I feel like this is a whole new world because right now we have the coarse that we use in a little grinder that we just always refill, and then we have the fine. But this is very exciting. <laughs> there are two other options out there to look into. So definitely going to go tell my husband that we're going to order some more salt. Uh, I so appreciate your time and you've shared just a whole lot of knowledge with all of us. But the final question I ask all guests is, in your opinion, based on the title of this podcast, what would you say it means to make the health investment? Um, I think it means intention, mm. uh, you know, being a, just a little bit more intentional with, with how we live and the choices we make. Um, I've always believed that we vote for the type of world we want to live in with how we spend our money. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to health, having that intention and that mindfulness, I think makes a really big difference. Not that we'll always choose the right choices, but being mindful of the choices we make, I think moves us closer to the direction that we want to go. I love that answer. No one's ever answered it that way, but that's a really good point to bring up. What is the best place for listeners to buy and also to follow Real Salt on social media? To buy, we love our local stores, especially in times like this. Mm -hmm. You know, we kind of take for granted um, online shopping. And so if you do have a local health food store or a local grocer that carries real salt, we would love to have you support your local grocer uh, or local health food. Now, like everything, real salt's available on our website. You can find us on Amazon. Um, a lot of, of fun articles on our website, which is just realsalt.com. It's not fake salt. It's not half salt. It's just realsalt.com. And, uh, and that's a great place to go. We're on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find us there as well. Awesome. Yeah, so you're kind of referencing that we're speaking during the full-on shelter-in-place during the whole coronavirus fiasco that's happening. So again, I appreciate you being here so much. Well, thanks for having me on, Brooke, and I really appreciate it. And salt has always um, has always been the flavor of life, and uh, I think it always will be. So really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks, Daryl. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. 
Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.